Open up our Bibles to Psalm 139. And as we do, we've been in a series of messages on uh, questions that you would ask God, answering God, you know, answering your toughest questions. And uh, we've been in a series, and we're going to be looking at things like, uh, you know, where, uh, what, about the, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? What about missions, and should we be, even be doing that? And what, what happens to the people that have never really had a chance to hear the gospel? We're looking at the second coming of Christ, looking at the culture, and uh, as we approach the uh, uh, presidential election here in just a few weeks, we'll be looking at that a little bit. And so answering some of the questions that you've answered, not only uh, on your card, your welcome card, but also in, on, uh, uh, on the uh, website as well as the whole community been asking the questions. So one of the questions that came, came up, um, in fact, I think a couple of times, is why did God create us in the first place if he knew we would fail? Well, let me just say this right up front. It, everybody fails. Say that with me. Such an encouraging word. <laughs> everybody fails. But it just depends on what you fail at. Or maybe that's not the right kind of English. But I was playing golf this week. Um, hadn't played it since about April or May. Uh, because I just don't, it's just not worth it playing during the summer. Uh, it's just too hot. So got together with a couple of members. I think they're probably here this morning. And, and Chris Murs. And we went out and played golf. Now, I had an unusually good shot. I'm not that good. But I had an un, uh, unusually good shot. And I had a chance for a birdie for about 8, 10 feet away. Now, this birdie, <clears throat> everybody knows what a birdie is. <clears throat> okay, par, bogey. Everybody knows what the bogey I mean, uh, just the sound, bogey, you know that's not good, you know. Just something about that word. But a, a birdie is a really good thing. And so um, there I was standing over the putt, and it was a downhill putt. And that was the tricky part. And so I tried to read it, and I hit the putt. I felt like at the right speed, it trickled down the hill, and it just went off to the left side. So I just didn't read it, read the putt just right. And it, it kept rolling and rolling and rolling. And it just kept going. In fact, I had further to come back than I had to putt in the first place. And so now I was putting for par. And I was a little nervous. I mean, how do you make a good shot like that to the green and blow it this bad? And so I putted it and choked it and missed it. Now, did that really bother me? Yes. Well, yeah, it did a little bit. Okay, you, you guessed it. You, you, you're all over it. So it did bother me a little bit, but I pretty soon forgot about that in the next four or five minutes. But what if, and you know, well, you know, if I was trying to beat Chris Murs, perhaps that would have been really tough, but I'm not that all that competitive. <clears throat> Plus, I could have knocked it around like a hockey stick on that green and still beat him. I was all right on that. <laughs> Chris, where are you, buddy? Right here in the back. All right. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Herb's not here. <laughs> I had to do something. So, uh, but anyway, now change it for just a moment, all right? Suppose here's a guy in his 30s. He's been trying to make it on the PGA Tour for a long, long time. And he's standing over before an eight-foot downhill putt to win the U.S. Open. Now, some of you don't understand golf. That sounds like a big tournament. It's one of the big four. In fact, if he were to sink this putt, he would not only uh, earn about a million and a half dollars, $1.5 million for one tournament, all kinds of endorsements. In fact, it would be worth just not $1.5 million, but millions of dollars and a, really a seat, um, you know, in the game. And so he's standing over the putt. 
and he hits the putt he feels like just right, and it is a good putt. He just misreads it just a little bit, and it sneaks by the hole, and it rolls and rolls and rolls. And he looks at it and says, wow, I've got more. I had an 8-foot putt, now I've got a 12-foot putt just for par. In fact, I could have won the U.S. Open. Now I'm just trying to tie to go into a playoff. But boy, if I miss this, I've blown it. So he gets up over the putt. He gets so nervous, the putt does, doesn't quite even get there. He chokes it. I dare to say that it's gonna, that putt, those two putts, are going to be more to him than it did to me. Well, we both failed, but the difference is I failed at something that dis, didn't matter. He failed at something that did matter. And the questions that we ask, because every single Christian, just like every single non-Christian, in the world fails at something maybe every day, but does it make a difference to us? And that's where the questions come up, isn't it? God, I'm trying to do this. I'm really trying my best to do this, and I just feel like I'm running up against a brick wall, and I'm just failing, and other people have really failed. They've blown it in life. God, why did you even create them? What about the people that never received Christ? What about them? Um, a few weeks ago, I shared with you <clears throat> a story, true story, that happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was leaving my home uh, for, for lunch, from lunch, and I wanted to be there playing with my grandkids, and I, I just sort of was kicking myself as I was leaving because I felt like, wow, I could have had a better time with them. My time could have been used better. My mind was completely somewhere else. And I just started uh, kind of having a little pity party with God. You ever done that? Anybody here? Okay, I'm the only one. A couple of people, you know, honest. The rest of you aren't listening. Just <clears throat> do like this to the person next to you and we'll be okay, as long as you know them, okay? Um, so we, uh, I was riding home and I was just thinking, God, you know, this is, I got to do this and this and this and this isn't working out right. And I've got to do something about this. If this is coming down. And suddenly I realized, you know, God, I need to read my own book. And I just wrote. Because it's not about me. The world doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around you. And he very quickly said to me, and it's one of those thoughts that maybe have come to your head before where you, you feel like it wasn't one word at a time. God just put the entire paragraph in your head. And basically he was saying, yeah, it does revolve around you because everything that's happening around in the world and everybody's, everything's happened to your, your kids and your grandkids and and your, your spouse and your church and people at the church, everything is being used in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. And so I was just awestruck with that. Not only is he using that in my life, but some of the same things in other people's lives. And some of the, some of the same things that I haven't even hardly thought about, it's big in somebody else's life. And so you think about it, 7 billion people in the world, and um, if only 10% of those are Christians, 700 million people, and that's pretty pessimistic, it's only 700 of those, are real believers. So if you take the pessimistic route, you think, wow, 700 million believers and every single thing that revolves around all that has something to do with making you more like Jesus Christ. Dear friend, that's why it's so important for you to make the right decisions to do what's right, no matter what the, the consequences may be, because it affects so many different people. But wow, I'm awestruck with that. When I got back to the, um, 
the office, I immediately turned to Psalm 139. Here's what it says. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue. Then he goes on to say in verse 6. Let me just skip to that. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me that it's too high. I cannot attain to it. God is just too big. It's just too high. Now, on the one hand, and this is what I talked about a few weeks ago, because God knows everything, we can trust him. Just think about it. If God did not know everything, how could we really place total trust in him if he didn't have control? If he didn't know about the past and the present and the future? If he didn't know about the decisions we're making and, and the consequences that they would have? We couldn't completely, we'd want to trust him, but we couldn't. So praise be to God, we can trust him. However, there's a flip side of that coin. If God knows everything, and he knows things before they even happen, and he, and he has created people that he would know that would never receive Christ, and he knows that they would be suffering in the world when he created Adam and Eve, and he knows that many people would fail in their life, even Christian people, because they refused to obey the Lord. He knows all that, and yet he created them anyway. Wow. God knows everything, so I can trust him. Another way to look at it, the way people look at it today, God knows everything. How can I trust him? And so let's look into the Bible, see what it says. First of all, I want you to know that Psalm 139 is basically one of the greatest psalms about God in all the Bible. In first, uh, verses 1 through 6, it talks about his omniscience, that is, his knowledge, omnipresence in verses 7 through 12, and then omnipotence, or his all-powerfulness, in verses 13 through 16. So today we look at the psalm, and we question about his knowledge. First of all, how much does God know? Look with me in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me, says David. This word search means digging like digging for a treasure, to explore, to get down deep into things. He says, you searched me and you known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You know me in my casual things that I do in life. You understand my thoughts from afar off. God, every thought that comes to my head, you know it. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, even as I'm speaking, behold, Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand bare upon me. God knows everything. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says it this way, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. And even in this psalm, in, in verse 13, listen to these words. For you have formed me in my inward parts. This answers the question about, when life begins. You form me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book with all that's written, the days that were ordained for me. He knew how, he knows how long we're going to live. He knows the beginning. He knows the end, says the psalmist. And when yet is there's not one of them has happened yet. How precious are your thoughts. 
everything. There's everything that's laid bare before him. So we ask the question then, when does he know it? When? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter starts off the book with a greeting. And in that greeting, he says, according, we've been chosen, he says, before the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. I said a few weeks ago, this verse, this word foreknowledge comes from the word pro, two words in the Greek, pro and gnosko. Pro means before. <clears throat> and gnosko, in every sense of the Bible, means knowledge. Now, the word oida means knowing by fact. But an interesting word, gnosko, is usually used for experiential knowledge. And so the idea here is that God has been before us and actually experienced what we're going to experience in advance. Now, this word does not mean to be foreordained. We'll come to that in just a moment, uh, unless you want it to mean that. <clears throat> but you've got to want it because it means to know beforehand. The idea is this. Uh, God said to Moses, I am the great I am. He said, I'm the God of the present because everything is present to God. If you can just imagine a boat coming along in a timeline, and he's on, the boat's on the river here, and then here the next day, and then here the next day. God's like sitting on a mountain. He can see all this at one time. He can see the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. <coughs> Excuse me. So what the Bible teaches is, is that God knows it all in advance. He's always known it. So therefore, God knows all things. We can trust him. God knows all things beforehand. How can we trust him? So let's look a little deeper. What does it mean? It means that his two things. One, his knowledge is a blessing to us. But secondly, it means his knowledge is a threat to us. So I want to be tr true to the text this morning and look at it closer. The Bible tells us, by the way, in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And so God has a future plan for us. God has a hope there for us. We know it's going to happen. We're looking forward to it happening. He's already been there. He's gone before us. And so we look here, verse 2 again, he knows my thoughts. Verse 2, he knows my words. Uh, and then in verse 7, it's interesting the way he comes across now and almost like he's changing the way he's looking at the knowledge of God. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Well, he's just saying how God's just everywhere, and it's wonderful. Is he really? He says, or where can I flee from your presence? The idea here is that David has suddenly realized, in all of God's glory, he's thinking to himself, wow, this is wonderful. I mean, my enemies are chasing me, and yet at the same time, God is always with me. And he said, whoa, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. You know my every thought? You know my every deed? You know what I'm going to do before I even do it? That's kind of scary, God. And he says, where can I go? Where can I flee? Where, where can I find freedom from this? And he goes on to say, if I ascend to heaven, and what he means by this is really the stars, if I go up the furthest north that I can go, you are there. If I go down to Sheol, the gray, the furthest south, you might say, I can go, the furthest down deep into the earth I can go, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, the dawn is in the east, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, 
was to the west, and so it's the furthest west. And what he's saying here, if I go up, go down, furthest east, east, west, it doesn't matter. You are always there. Kind of a scary notion, isn't it? That he, he knows that your mind has wandered from this message. As mine has wandered. That's the reason I take notes. I've always taken notes because if I don't, my, my wonders. And um, sometimes I'm wondering, how would I say that as that guy preaching? To but anyway, that's another story. But he says, <clears throat> David is amazed by this, and yet he's thinking, God's watching me. John Paul Sartre, uh, the philosopher, atheist philosopher, has a paper, never read the paper, but he has a paper out that talks about, or back, back when he was writing, um, about looking through a keyhole. He's saying God, the conception of, of God, is we're looking through a keyhole at everybody else. Then suddenly we realize, it dawns on us, that somebody's looking at a keyhole to us, toward us. He said, we're never free from that. I can't believe in that kind of God. I want to be free. Scott Peck was talking to a, a lady in his office. She was having all kinds of difficulties and darkness and evil, really, in her life. Everything was coming down upon her. And she, she just was talking about her story. And, and Scott Peck mentioned to her, said, now you said you went to church. Now Scott Peck, as far as I know, not a believer, I, I don't know, uh, a secular writer. Uh, but he said, now tell me about the church experience you had. How did that affect your life? She says, I don't want to talk about that. I'm out of church. I don't want to go to church. I don't have anything to do with it. And uh, she, he could tell she was getting a little testy, so he knew he hit a nerve here. He says, no, I really need to know if I'm going to help you. How did church really affect you in your life? And she raised up out of her chair, and she said, I will never go back to any church again. God is not going to rule my life. I demand to be free, and he can keep his eyes and nose out of my business. Basically what she said. And she was very upset about it. She wanted the freedom. Now, you, as Americans, we've made freedom the big thing. I've got to be free. You know, everybody's got to be free. It's almost like a libertarian thing that has taken over America. But Sartre also talked about the darkness of it all. In fact, verse 10 of this passage says, Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is dark, is not dark, excuse me, not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And he goes on to say, he said, look, we've got sort of a choice here. We can live in total freedom, no rules, just live any way we want to, but we live in the darkness. We live alone. We live knowing there's no one looking through the keyhole at us. We're going to put that off. We're not going to believe that because the way to flee in a in the world today is to run from God and not believe in God. So I'm not going to believe in God, so I can have total freedom, but there's no one with me. I'm alone. I'm in darkness. I have no one to turn to when I need help. And Sartre goes on to say in this paper, he said, we are, we are condemned to live in freedom because he doesn't believe that God's looking and God is there. Well, we look, and in verse 17, he begins to close, climax the passage. 
How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This is his victory chant. Because even when I awake, what's he talking about here? This is the same idea. Remember when Jesus went and healed the little girl, the little girl had died, and he says, oh, she's only asleep. And they laughed at him because they knew she was dead. And he says, awake, and she stands up. Remember that? Same idea. What David is saying is, even when I die, I'm going to awake, and you will be with me. Now we have a dilemma. We have the darkness versus the light. We have the, the freedom versus the total freedom to do whatever we want, but also we're condemned to it as we're alone. And so what do we do with all this? What do we do with it? There's a problem. And the problem as we look at it comes twofold. One, it comes with the whole problem of the salvation. I said just a few moments ago, all of us fail. All of us are in that darkness sometimes. We need the helping hand to say you're not alone. But as we're looking at it, what is the most important? We all fail. But what really hurts is when we fail at something that's important. I will say to you, there are two things that are most important. And if you would share that importance with God, I'm telling you that failure will never be final with you. Never. Two things. One has to do with rescuing, simple salvation. In verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, depart from me. Therefore, the men of bloodshed, for they seek against you wickedly. He's being chased at this time. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them in the utmost hatred. They will have become my enemies. Now, I know that this is a tough passage to explain, but please understand that this was before the cross. Jesus said we are to love our enemies. And so getting that out of the way, he's really talking about a rescue. Lord, I need to be rescued. I need the salvation in my life. We said just a few moments ago that we humanize God, and we said there's, there's, there, you have five kids, three of them are going to be lost, two of them are going to be saved. What would you do? Would you never have any kids? This would be a choice, wouldn't it? Because as long as you have free will going on in the lives of people, and free will, without free will, you don't have a loving relationship. And God says, I value a loving relationship above anything else. And that's why he's come and Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, yea, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And we've said before in this series that no matter what you're going through in life, there can never be any doubt that it's because of God. That's because that God doesn't love you. But he does send us through different things in our life. But what about this whole idea of salvation? Now, we are God's creation. We're not his children until we are saved, until Jesus Christ comes into our heart. The Bible says we're adopted. So the analogy of you having five children and three of them being lost, two of them being saved, is not exactly a good analogy for that. We can't humanize God in that way. But we said in this passage, there's a difference between what God has ordained 
to happen and what God knows will happen. He said, what's the difference? Hey, look, if God pre-planned certain people to go to hell versus, okay, God didn't plan that they would go to hell, but he knew they would. They, he knew they would never receive Christ, and yet he allowed them to be born anyway. What's the difference? Well, the difference is both of them, first of all, have a mystery to it. There's a mystery here. Where is the mystery? If you say that somehow this verse and 1 Peter 1, 2 means for ordination, and again, you can only get that. I don't care who you read. You can only get that if you want to get that by reading other passages into it. But if you say that, you have a mystery there with the character of God. How could he pre-plan someone to be born and he knew they would not be saved? On the other hand, God knew they would be born. God knew they would not receive him, even though they would be given plenty of opportunity to do so, maybe. And there they were. They said no. They said no. And God knew that. Why did he allow them to be born? There's a mystery there, but it's in the attributes of God. He can't help that he knows everything. It's up to him to apply that. He just can't help it. He knows everything, past, present, and future, and yet... If he allowed only those people that would be saved, then really what we're saying is he's going to take away the free will. He's just going to take it away. Because sooner or later, somebody's going to say, no, I'd rather run my own life. I want to be free. I don't want to be in submission to God. I want to be free. And so we look at this, and no free will, there is no, there is no loving relationship. And so God says, I know it, I know it, and yet at the same time, I'm going to allow it, and I'm going to allow it for the, for the love relationship and the free will, that you have a moral choice in life. But then what about the Christian? Say, so, well, you know, I know guys that have failed. They failed their marriages. They failed their children. Women have failed maybe the uh, career move that they were making. I don't know. Just all kinds of failure. So you ask yourself the question, what about that? Well, the Bible says this, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, know my heart. Now, he's already, he says over here in verse 1, you have searched me. You've dug deep, God, and he's saying, God, go ahead and do it some more. Why? Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David knows something here. He knows that in order to receive the promises of God, they're going to be conditional. Really receiving the promise of God, even in salvation, has some condition. You've, you've got to say yes. And he says, God wants to conform you to the image of his son. He says, to lead me in the way everlasting, to see if there's any hurtful way or sinful way in me, because sin hurts, and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's the thing. We always fail at something. What really counts is succeeding in the most important things of life. And I share with you the two most important things of life are your salvation. It lasts for eternity, and it also is going to make a difference on how you affect the rest of your life and everybody else in your life. And the second thing, the second thing is becoming more and more like Jesus as we grow in Christ. And God will never take those away from you. 
The devil can never take that away from you. Nothing can be taken away from you unless you will it to be so. The Bible says in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it <clears throat> day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. God says, look, a lot of the stuff going on in your life is just temporary stuff. You stay in the Word of God. You stay not in the, the way of freedom, though God does give us freedom. The Bible says that Jesus, the truth shall set you free. You're free on the inside, not to keep on sinning and do anything you want to do, but freedom, a freedom to follow Christ and a power to follow Christ because you certainly can't follow him without the power. But he says, as, as God brings you in to that path to success, and as you affect every single person in your life in some way, some way, as that butterfly effect takes place, maybe eventually all throughout the world because of the way you're leading your life. He says you won't fail in that if you meditate on the Word, stay in the Word, and if you follow me, obey the Word. You're just not going to fail. So we look and we realize that David is saying, God, you know everything, I can trust you. God, you know everything, that bothers me. But God, I'm going to surrender all that to you. I'm going to surrender the things that I don't understand so I can get blessed in a way that you will understand and that one day I will understand. And you just look at your life this morning. Maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself, Wow, if God knows everything about me, he doesn't want me. I'm reminded of the story of Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. I love to tell this to uh, children, but um, in the story. You remember the story, right? Some of you, Zacchaeus was what? A wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Yeah, some of you know that. Little jingle. Little children's story in the Bible. Jesus is riding along on a donkey. Big crowd gathered around him. A fellow by the name of Zacchaeus was a, was a small fellow. He runs up, the Bible says, a sycamore tree, hanging over a limb just to get a glimpse of Jesus. So he's riding along. Jesus has never met him. And he looks up and he sees him. And he says, Zacchaeus, he knows him by name. Wow. How did that happen? And he says, you know, he didn't say this, but even though he was a tax collector and hated among everybody else because of the things, money he's, he's really pilfered, stolen. He says, tonight I'm going to eat at your house. We're going to fellowship together. Zacchaeus runs down the tree. His life was totally changed. Anybody he had cheated, he'd, he'd give out, well, what, fourfold? Half of his money went to the poor. He was a changed man. But here's the lesson. Just like Zacchaeus, God sees you. He knows you, but he still loves you, and he wants you. So this morning, you're sitting here today, and you're not understanding everything about the Bible and everything that goes on. Know those four things. God sees you right where you are. Every circumstance of your life, he sees you sitting here in Cross Life Church. He knows what's brought you to this place, and he knows everything Everything good about you, every dark secret about you. And yet, 
He would die on the cross for you. And he wants you in his family. He wants to adopt you this morning. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's make that happen. Heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around the quietness of this moment. Right now, if you've never received Christ into your heart, I want to invite you to do that right now. By praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Father, we come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would move on people's hearts even right now. Now, would you pray this prayer, Lord Jesus? Thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. You see me, you know me. And yet, you still love me. And thank you, Lord that I don't have to be in the darkness. I don't have to be alone. But you're going to be with me forever. In Jesus' name.